In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I want to ask that as we go through this difficult passage, you will give us understanding. Once again, I want to ask that you will help us to be Bereans, to carefully examine your scriptures, to study them thoroughly so that we can understand them. of New York City with Jesus prior to 9-11, and as you're walking with Jesus, you point out uh, the heights and the beauty of the Twin Towers, only to hear Jesus turn to you and say, you see those Twin Towers? I tell you, a day is coming when not one floor will be left upon another. Both of those towers will implode and be leveled to the ground. I've used that analogy before, but I think it's helpful to better appreciate just how shocking Jesus' words would have been to his disciples when he described the destruction of the temple. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Mark 13. And I'll just warn you right up front this morning, we have a lot of different scriptures we will look at. Um, I'm making a lot of connections more than normal. So I'm hoping and I'm praying that I won't lose you in the process. So um, I hope you all brought your thinking caps on this morning. And maybe I'll also say up front, um, if you don't take notes, maybe today would be a great time to take notes, um, write down some of these passages. And I'll also say it's a fellowship feast. So if you have any questions afterwards, feel free to ask me. And if I can't answer your question, I will direct you to Brian. Brian, to answer all your, all your questions. So, Mark 13. And as he, Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another. Regardless, we read that Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Tell us, when will these buildings be leveled to the 
back to that in a little while, what Jesus said. But I want to draw your attention, first of all, to what he said right at the end of the Olivet Discourse, verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And then in verse 28, as a way of summarizing all this, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, all the things that he's talked about, you know that he is near at the very gate. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, I'm beginning with this episode because I believe this is the coming of Christ that the scoffers were referring to in Peter's day. Jesus said within a generation, he would come, and they are scoffing at that idea. Jesus said that his coming would be characterized by Jerusalem being destroyed, the glorious temple being leveled, and he said specifically this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So returning back to 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, this phrase, the promise of his coming, refers, you got two options before you, so it's, I know it's a lot, but you have two simple options before you. It either refers to Jesus coming in judgment upon Jerusalem, or it refers to the second coming. I've read most of, not most of the commentaries, there's way too many. But a bunch of commentators, and those are your two options. I haven't seen another option. I believe it refers to his coming in judgment upon Jerusalem. And I want to make my case by clarifying four phrases that we find in verses 3 and 4. And we're only going to cover those verses because there is just way too much here. But I want to clarify four phrases that I think will make an argument for this case. And then I want to end by asking, so what? <laughs> What's the point of, of all this of all this theology? Here's the first one. What does the promise of his coming refer to? I want to clarify that. So perhaps most Christians assume, and I think this is important, that whenever they hear the phrase, the coming of Christ, they think if it doesn't refer to his first coming, then it must refer to his second coming. And I can relate to that because that used to be my assumption. If it's not a reference to the first coming, then it's a reference to the second coming. But I don't think it is. There are a different. There are other comings of Christ. For example, if you will turn to Matthew 10. And again, I know there's a lot of uh, pages here. So if you would like, this is what I'm going to do. I'll prepare you ahead of time. Preparing. I'm going to prepare, or excuse me, I'm going to go through Matthew 10, and I'm going to relate that to Mark 13, where you might want to keep both of those tabs.
there will be a lot of page turning, which I heard R.C. Sproul refer to one time as Baptist air conditioning. And I thought, well, that's appropriate. <laughs> so maybe today's a good morning to have our Baptist air conditioner going with the pages turning to keep us all keep us all cool. Now, as I said, most people, if it's not the first coming, they assume it's the second coming. And I remember having a discussion with a, a guy on Facebook, and I said, do you think that Matthew 10, 23 refers to the second coming? And this is Matthew 10, 23. When they persecute you in one town, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And I said, do you think this refers to the second coming? And he said, of course. And I said, well, that seems like an odd interpretation to me. So Jesus is saying, before the disciples finish going through the towns in Israel, which assumes that some of them at least will still be alive, the second coming is going to take place. And then I waited back to hear his response. And the response was crickets. <laughs> now, here's my assumption. He, he just assumed it's the second coming. But then when I said, this is what I think you're saying by your interpretation, we looked at it more closely. And I've heard people say this before. I've never looked at the verse that closely. That's, that does seem like a coming that's taking place in the first century. And a lot of commentators take it that way. I'm assuming that he took a closer look at it and he didn't have an answer. Now, just, just as an aside here, uh, because this is highly debatable, and I'll admit my view is in the minority, um, I don't have an axe to grind here. Um, when it comes to theology, I'm, I'm not defensive here. For the most part, nobody's, nobody's perfect. Um, but really, what I'm hoping this is is an argument for truth. What, what, what is the Bible saying, as I prayed earlier, I'm just praying that we can be Bereans. Where does the evidence seem to lie? I've, I've changed my view on a number of issues over the years, which means I have been wrong about a lot of issues, and I've been humbled again and again. So I'm just asking you, here are my arguments, and if you have another argument or you think I uh, misinterpreted something, feel free to draw my attention to that, and let's talk like grown-ups. right up front. Um, I want you to see the parallels between these passages. So most importantly, you can see that I think Jesus is talking about the same events and most importantly for our purposes, the same coming. So if we begin in Matthew 10, 17 and 18, this is what we read. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now compare that with Mark 13, 9. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before me. We have no less than seven parallels between those verses. I won't.
phrase by phrase by phrase, and I just counted them up. We have seven parallels. Back to Matthew 10, 19-20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for it is not you, or excuse me, for you are not to say, well, or I lost it. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And then we'll compare that with Mark 13, 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And again, just taking it phrase by phrase, I have five exact parallels. Back to Matthew 10, 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Mark 13, 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And once again, just taking them side by side, I have five parables. One more, Matthew 10, 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end and then Mark 13, 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Two parallels. If you add up those parallels, I have counted 19 parallels. And my thinking, if you were to take that passage in Matthew 10 and that passage in Mark 13, you could place them right on top of each other. And if they were written by two different people or given by two different people, I would say that is blatant plagiarism. If Jesus said it first, I, I would say you just said exactly what he did, almost word for word, but it's Jesus saying the same thing in two different passages. And then, as I said, he ends both passages by talking about his coming. And in the one, he tells the disciples in Matthew that he's going to come before the disciples finish going through Israel. In the other, he says that he will come in power and glory before this generation passes away. And in both, there's a specific time frame given about his coming. The ones before the disciples are done going through Israel, the one is a generation. So I believe an argument, at least, if you're still with me, can be made that the passages are talking about the same coming, which took place in the first century, which coincided with the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus coming in judgment. Now, here's what I think is fascinating for what's going on in 2 Peter. The Olivet Discourse was given by Jesus roughly 30 AD. Second Peter is written roughly 67 or 68 AD, which means 
almost an entire generation has passed away, and there is the temple still standing. <coughs> and now you have scoffers looking at that, and they are saying, where is this coming that Jesus and the disciples said was going to happen within a generation before the disciples finished going through Israel? I don't see it. So my first point of, of clarification is that the promise of his coming, I believe, refers to a coming in judgment. And to bolster that, I'd like to clarify another phrase. This is the second one, the last days. Peter talks about that in 2 Peter 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days scoffing, saying, where is the sign of his coming? And then once again, I know we have a lot of theology, but it's not that hard. You basically have two options here for what last days means. Your first option is that last days, it's the last days of the Old Covenant, which came to a conclusion with the destruction of your second option, as John MacArthur has said, and most of the Reformed camp agree with him, the last days refers to the entire period between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Now, if it, let's just try a thought experiment. If it's the second option, if the last days refers to the entire time period between the first coming and the second coming, then Peter's saying, now I want you to know that throughout the entire course of church history, which we now know has been at least 2,000 years, throughout the entire course of church history, there are going to be scoffers who are going to scoff at the idea of there being a second coming. Now, with all due respect, that seems highly unlikely. And if I can be honest with you, I don't think it's really all that helpful. That would be like Peter saying, I want you to know that throughout the course of church history, there are going to be people who scoff at the deity of Christ. Who scoff at the idea of the atoning work of Christ on the cross, salvation by faith alone, the sovereignty of God, the inspiration and authority of, of Scripture. If, if I was hearing Peter say, I want you to know scoffers are going to be saying, I would be saying in my mind, isn't that kind of a given? Could, couldn't we just conclude that there will always be scoffers who are going to be scoffing at these ideas? I don't, I don't really understand what the big insight is. But what if these last days is referring to a specific time frame, and it's that period right before the destruction of Jerusalem? I think an argument can be made for that case, that the last days, he's talking about the last days of the Old Covenant before it came to a decisive conclusion with the destruction of the Temple and then the New Covenant. And here's where we want Scripture to interpret Scripture. If nothing else, may, maybe through all these passages we can have our hermeneutics lined up. We want to we interpret things in light of its context, and allow scripture to interpret scripture. So what does this phrase last days means? And to figure that out, we go to other passages. So here's Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's been outpoured. People are hearing the gospel in their own language. These people are out of their mind. They're drunk. What does Peter say? 
for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Quote, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Peter says, Joel said, when the last days come, and now they are here, the Holy Spirit's being poured out, and that's what you're seeing, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which will take place in the last days. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. The author says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Past he spoke to the prophets, but now in these last days of the old covenant, he is speaking through his son. And then even Peter, 1 Peter 1.20, one more. I told you there'd be a lot of page turns here. 1 Peter 1.20, talking about Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was manifested in the last times for your sake. So the last times or the last days is not a reference to the end of the world or even the entire course of church history, but the end of the old covenant that came to a decisive end, as I said, with the destruction of the temple, which was important because that meant the end of the sacrificial system, the end of the Levitical priesthood, the end of going to Jerusalem as the place of worship. With the destruction of the temple, every, everything changed. God brought about a brand new order. So that was very significant. Even to this day, the Jews do not offer sacrifices. It all was brought to an end in the last days because we're now living in a new era. And I believe that makes more sense of the scoffers. Peter is saying in these last days, scoffers are going to come, and they're going to say, where's the sign of his coming? There's the temple. Again, the temple is still standing, but probably for now. So two more. These are briefer, but I do believe they help bolster my argument. The next is a reference to these fathers. Term, verse, verse 4. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were before. Now, who are these fathers? Some take it as a reference to the Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, most take it as a reference to the 12 apostles, to those who were leaders. Almost all modern commentators agree that the fathers are the first generation of Christians. Yet few recognize the implication that the mockery of the scoffers only makes sense if they are contesting a promise that the coming would occur before the fathers had fallen asleep. If Jesus had said, these things are going to be fulfilled in some uncertain time frame, the passing of the fathers would have been as irrelevant as the passing of the dodo. If, however, they are disputing a prophecy of the coming that has specific reference to the apostolic generation, 
Then the mockery makes sense. Wherever did they get the idea that Jesus would return before the fathers died? Lo and behold, Jesus made that exact promise. Because he said he'd come in this generation. But now many of the fathers are dying, and they're saying, the fathers are dying. Where is this coming? I'm hoping that you can see why this scoffing makes the most sense if it's a first century situation that Peter is addressing. And then just one more, and again, this one is deep as well. Verse 3, this reference to first of all. This reference to first of all. Verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing again. There's the promise. He's coming. Now, here I agree with John MacArthur and the vast majority of commentators hold to this as well. This phrase, first of all, is not speaking about chronological sequence, but rather about priority. But here's what Peter is saying. This is a first priority. In other words, this is really important. Congregation, you need to know this. Scoffers are going to come, and they are going to scoff about the coming of Christ. Now, why is that so important if Peter's just talking about something that's generally going to take place in the course of church history for 2,000 and more years? But... If what's happening is Jesus made this promise, roughly A.D. 30, we're now almost at the close of, of a generation. It's A.D. 67, 68. Many of the fathers have fallen asleep. The temple is still standing, which means now the scoffers can be more adamant in their scoffing. The promise of his coming this generation, when did he say that? It's like we scoff it. At the Jehovah's Witnesses, who talked about the coming of Jesus at the beginning of the 20th century. We say, Where did, when did it happen? We mock that. And rightly so. So what's happening is they're getting more bold as, as time goes on. And Peter's saying, I want you to know this is first important. They're going to come, but don't be swayed by them because the promise of Christ will be fulfilled. It will happen just that makes most sense. And again, I'm willing to have discussion. Good people can, can have differing opinions on this, but I want us to be Bereans, and I just want us to examine the scriptures to see where the evidence points. Now, what, what can we take away from this? Maybe at this point you're, you're asking the so what question. Is this, is this just Ivory Tower theologians love to debate this kind of stuff. Uh, what's, what's the so what? Let me give you at least one so what. Um, I want the scoffers to be silenced. And they, they need to be answered. Bertrand Russell wrote a book years ago, Why I'm Not a Christian. And in that book, Why I'm Not a Christian, he gave different arguments about why he's not a Christian. And among the many arguments that he gave, this is one that he I am concerned with Christ as he appears in the Gospels. For one thing, he certainly thought that his
his second coming would occur in clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at that time. There are a great many texts that prove that. He says, for instance, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man comes. So Bertrand Russell basically said blatantly, Jesus was wrong, therefore he's a false prophet. I can't trust him. I can't rely upon what he says. That's one of the reasons why I am not a Christian. And I don't know about you, but if someone gave that kind of reason for why they're not a Christian, wouldn't you want to give an answer? Wouldn't you want to say, wait a second, wait a second, Jesus was not wrong. I want to do that. There's, there's a lot of stake. The credibility of Jesus is at stake. And if we don't answer a debate between the atheist Christopher Hitchens and the pastor Doug Wilson, and Christopher Hitchens brought up the point that Jesus was wrong in his prophecy about his second coming in the Olivet Discourse. And it was great to hear somebody say, he wasn't wrong, he said he would come, and he did come. He wasn't talking about his second coming, he was talking about coming in judgment. And everything that Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, the most detailed prophecy given in all of Scripture, took place to the letter, which, instead of undermining who Jesus is, lends tremendous credibility to what he says, which demonstrates that he is indeed a true prophet. And Christopher Hitchens said, guessing that he never received an adequate answer to that question, which is why he brought it up. He was involved in many debates. I debate different people, Jehovah's Witnesses. People ask me, what should I say? And I'll say, give me. I did it just recently. I said, because I've never gotten a good answer to this verse. Now, I think they have other answers to other verses. I'm not satisfied. I think Christopher Hitchens used this because he, he knows he's never gotten a good answer. He finally got a good answer. And the scoffers need Jesus needs to be vindicated. I love what uh, Peter Lightheart writes in his in his book. This is the promise of his appearing, the commentary on 2 Peter. But he says, the reason Peter takes this with such high seriousness, and that's the promise of his coming, is not difficult to fathom, though it has been forgotten or ignored for centuries, as N.T. Wright has recently argued. Jesus' prediction of a coming destruction of the city and temple, developed at length in the Olivet Discourse, was a test case of his claim to be a true prophet and Messiah. A true prophet is one whose predictions come to pass. Jeremiah was a true prophet because he predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, and it happened. The false prophets of his day were false prophets because they predicted peace that never came. If Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem and predicted that it would happen within, within a generation, which it did, then he can be considered a true prophet only if it came to pass, which it did. So part of what's at stake is the fact that Jesus is a true prophet.
future prophets, everything that he said did come to pass. And I want to have an answer for those who are rejecting the Christian faith. Whenever they give an example from scripture, I at least want to have some kind of answer for the scoffers so that they can be and even if those come to a, some of you come to a different conclusion, that's okay. Maybe what we can take away from this, and if we only take away this from away from this, I'll be I'll be happy, and still we'll have considered all this theology and different passages a success. If we are good Bereans, if we do ask ourselves, what's going on in the context? What does this phrase mean when we compare scripture with scripture? If we can do that, I think we will be excellent congregation. I think we'll be a congregation of noble character, even if on different issues that aren't primary to come to the Father, we thank you for your word. We even thank you for those difficult passages of scripture that cause us to scratch our head and to wonder if we've come to the right I do want to pray for this congregation. Father, I pray that we will be people who eagerly examine the scriptures. Father, I pray that we can provide answers for those who mock the faith. Not because we want to be brilliant theologians, not because we're arrogant and puffed up, but because we want to vindicate Jesus Christ. We want to vindicate your word and show that it's true, reliable, that we can live Father, again, help us to be Bereans. Pray for this congregation that anything that they've heard that's true, that they would embrace. If it's not true, that they would reject. If they have any questions, I pray that they would have hearts that want to know 